you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The soldiers led Jesus away. At that same time, there was a man from Cyrene named Simon coming into the city from the fields. The soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross and walk behind him. A large crowd followed Jesus. Some of the women were sad and crying. They felt sorry for him. But Jesus turned and said to the women, Women of Jerusalem, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves and for your children too. The time is coming when people will say, The women who cannot have babies are the ones that God has blessed. It's really a blessing that they have no children to care for. Then the people will say to the mountains, fall on us, and they will say to the hills, cover us. If this can happen to someone who is good, what will happen to those who are guilty? There were also two criminals led out with Jesus to be killed. They were led to a place called the Skull. There, the soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross. They also nailed the criminals to crosses beside Jesus, one on the right and the other one on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. The soldiers threw dice to divide Jesus' clothes between them. The people stood there watching everything. The Jewish leaders laughed at Jesus. They said, if he's God's chosen one, the Messiah, and let him save himself. He saved others, didn't he? Even the soldiers laughed at Jesus and made fun of him. They came and offered him some sour wine, and they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. At the top of the cross, these words were written, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging there began to shout insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? And save yourself, save us too. But the other criminal stopped him. He said, you should fear God. All of us will die soon. You and I are guilty. We deserve to die because we did wrong. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you begin ruling as king. Then Jesus said to him, I promise you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon, but it turned dark throughout the land until three o'clock in the afternoon because the sun stopped shining. The curtain in the temple was torn into two pieces. Jesus shouted, Father, I put my life in your hands. After Jesus said this, he died. Church, why don't we pray and ask God for his help as we explore his word together. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that we have this account of the death of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as we read it together, that you would help us make sense of it. You'd help us feel the weight of it. You'd help us to, to be grateful and live in light of what you've done for us through the cross. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, well, friends, I'm Ben. Welcome to City on a Hill. It's so good to be with you. Great to have so many people here with us. Welcome to you if you're new with us or you're here with us for Easter. So good to be opening God's Word on this Good Friday. Now, Britt has already said that it feels sometimes a bit like a funeral service, Good Friday, doesn't it? I've never been to a funeral with a giant green Mario arch, but that notwithstanding, it can feel a bit somber because here we have a, a cross at the center of our time together today. We're remembering a death. And I don't know about you, but when I go to funerals, I think about my own death. Do you do that? I look around at who's there, you, who's not there. You, you listen to the stories about what's said and shared of the person who's died. And you think, well, I wonder what they'd say about me. I wonder who'll come for my funeral. What, what, what significance will my death have? What, what impact will it have, if any? Because here's the thing, right? With life... We get to make meaning in lots of ways. We have significant relationships. We have career accomplishments. We have experiences of different places and cultures and people and food. And it's wonderful. We, we all can make meaning with our lives, but it's so much more difficult with death, isn't it? Now, some have a, a lasting impact. The organ donor or the body donated to science uh, maybe the martyr who dies for a cause and draws attention to their plight. Those deaths in and of themselves have impact, don't they? In Ballarat, we live not far from the Avenue of Honor. It's a 22-kilometer stretch of road. It looks like some of the pictures on the screen. And on this road, there's a tree every 10 meters or so. And at each tree, there's a plaque. And on each plaque, there's a name. And that's the name of a soldier who died in World War I. Those deaths are a sacrifice, a worthy death so people can maintain freedom and Aussie values dying in that war. So some people can leave a lasting legacy. They have an impact with their death. But, but aren't those people the fortunate few? Isn't it true for most of us? Death has little meaning at all. It's, it's random often. It's cruel, it's untimely, and in and of itself, all it means is the end of another life. Artists have long wrestled with the meaninglessness of death. Here's poet Dylan, Tom and he pen, Dylan Thomas penned these lines. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. He's pleading with us to resist death because all it means is the end, that the dying of a light, it's meaningless. And whatever worldview we have, right, whatever we come in here this morning with, whether we're a Christian or we're not a Christian at all, all of us have to deal with the reality of death. We all feel that sting, don't we? And I'm sure all of us have lost someone we've loved. When I was five, my older sister was six, uh, my younger brother was two, my sister was one. My mom uh, took ill, and it turns out she contracted a very rare but aggressive blood infection. Uh, and it's funny how the, the young mind gets warped and memories get changed in this time of my life, because I remember it like a, a year of her being sick. We'd go home from school, we'd climb into bed with her, and we'd sort of watch her slowly decline in her condition, but that's not how it happened at all. 
My grandmother told me a few years ago that mom was sick, and within a week, she had died. She went from being a fit and healthy 30-something full of life to dead in no time at all. And the truth is, that rips your heart out, doesn't it? It leaves you in a, a, a place of darkness that you never think you'll leave. No, we did, by God's grace. But even with 30 years of hindsight, I still can't make sense. I, I still can't find meaning in her death. In her life, absolutely there's four kids and a, and a loving marriage, and she was loved by friends and family. She had a, a successful career. In her life, there was much meaning, and we still feel the impact of that. But in her death, oh, it still just seems random and painful. And isn't that one of the reasons why death is so painful? Because it is just so random and just so meaningless. It's just another stat. We're just another number. We're just one more person on a list of people long gone and long forgotten. And yet, there's one death that stands out. There's one death that's remembered more than any other, and this is the death of a, a jobbing carpenter, an itinerant preacher in a backwater of the Roman Empire. He, and his death, is the subject of more artwork and sculpture and literature and music than anyone else for two millennia. His death is marked by millions of people all over the world today. In fact, we even call it a Good Friday. Now, how can that be? How can Jesus' death have mean, meant so much? Why does it stand out when death is so often just meaningless and so quickly forgotten? Well, here's why. Because there's never been a death more meaningful than the death of Jesus. The Bible reading we heard was from Luke's gospel, and Luke uh, collects eyewitness stories of the life and death of Jesus, and he orders them for us. And, and the record he produces still stands up to scrutiny. Here's secular historian Tom Holland. He says, there is no reason to doubt the essentials of this narrative. Even the most skeptical historians have tended to accept that. So his death is not a hoax, it's not a fantasy, it's history, it happened, and so we're going to grapple with what it means. We're going to grapple with it and, and look at it from three different angles. It's like a, a, a wonderful piece of art that if you stand in a different position, you can see and appreciate something different about his death. And so we'll look at these three things, and in fact, they are three things that Jesus said as he died on the cross. So we'll let him show us the meaning of his own death and why it changed the world, and why he's still changing lives today. Are you with me? Let's look at the first thing his death means. His death means our forgiveness. Uh, if you've got your Bible, keep it open with us at Luke 23. If you don't, don't worry, there'll be verses on the screen behind me. Uh, we pick up the story just before Jesus is crucified. Hatred of him has been building uh, amongst the Jewish religious elite for years, and, and they've been waiting and looking for an opportunity to put an end to Jesus. He's been making these claims about him being the son of God, and for them, that's blasphemy. That's claiming to be God, and that is a punishment fit for 
death. And so finally they, they seize their moment. They pay his friend to betray his location. And in the dead of night, they seize him and they arrest him. They take him to the high priest's house for a sham trial. And they take about two minutes to decide that he's guilty. But the trouble is they can't put him to death. So they need to take him to the Roman authorities. And they do. They drag him before Pilate, the Roman governor. There's another sham trial. But Pilate can't see that Jesus has done anything wrong. He, he sees he's innocent. He wants to release him. But he's a spineless man. And so as the crowd in Jerusalem bays for the blood of Jesus, Pilate washes his hands and gives Jesus over to be executed. A man he knows is innocent. He hands him over, and not just any old execution, Jesus will die by crucifixion. First, the soldiers mock him. They spit on him. They strip his clothes, and then they flay him with whips embedded with shards, big shards of metal that tear strips of flesh off his bones. By now, Jesus is a battered, bloodied disfigure of a man. Uh, Typically, the victim would be forced to carry their cross through the streets to the place of execution, but Jesus is too weak. So Simon of Cyrene is in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's forced to carry Jesus' cross behind him as they walk through Jerusalem, the crowds mocking him on their way to the place of the skull. There a criminal on either side, they crucify Jesus. Nine inch nails are are driven through his hands and his feet. The cross is then hoisted high on the hill and dropped into a pre-dug hole, but every movement excruciating for Jesus. It's a, a death designed to be slow and painful and public. The crowds beneath gather to watch this spectacle, mocking these victims for getting what they deserved. It'd be like hanging someone from the shot tower here in Melbourne Central so the whole city can see and and shame the victim of this death. Eventually, they're so exhausted, these crucified men, that they can't pull themselves up on the nails anymore to take a breath and they slowly suffocate. We should shudder at the horror of this death. But even commentators at the time were appalled. The Roman orator Cicero said this, crucifixion is the most cruel and disgusting penalty and it ought to be reserved for slaves alone. Jesus is experiencing unimaginable torment hanging on that cross. His situation is dire. Death is near. And yet in that moment, Jesus speaks and his words help us make sense of why this is happening. Turn with me to Luke 23. This is Jesus's first statement on the cross. Verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's the innocent victim of injustice, but sucking in breath 
to pray for his enemies. Father, forgive them. To forgive is to deliberately, consciously release feelings of resentment or or vengeance towards someone who has harmed you or a group who have hurt you. These are people putting Jesus to death. And yet he doesn't pray for their vengeance against them. I'd want vengeance. No, he prays for their forgiveness. It's so in keeping with Jesus' character, right? Earlier in Luke's story of him, Jesus is teaching in a crowded house, and four friends carry a man up onto the roof of the house. They dig a hole through the roof. They lower the man into Jesus' feet so that Jesus would heal him. The crowd pauses, wondering what's going to happen next. Jesus goes one better. He forgives this man's sin, and then he heals his paralysis. He helps him walk. And and by doing it in that order, he's very deliberately making a statement about what this man's most significant problem is. To the watching world, it is the fact that he cannot walk, but Jesus knows it's not that. It is the unforgiven sin in his life. But Jesus can deal with both. And so the man walks We'll fast forward to this moment on the cross, and he's crystal clear on what his death means. It means his enemies can be forgiven by the same God who is here offended by his sin. The logic in God's economy is this, right? All humans sin. We all fall short of God's standard of perfection. Sin is not just the things that we do or say or don't do. Now, it's much more than that. It's our hard-edged refusal to recognize God's central role in our lives. Pastor John Piper says this, Sin is any attitude or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God above all things. Now, none of us are built different here. None of us treasure God the way we do ought to above all things all the time. And so in God's economy, we are are separated by our sin from him. And and that sin deserves punishment. And the consequences are death. There must be consequences, right? Otherwise, God would just be indifferent about his world and the people in it. He wouldn't care about justice, but he does. And yet, instead of us receiving the full weight of those consequences, of our sin here, the the Son of God himself steps in to take this punishment that we deserve. He, uh, his perfect, spotless, sinless life, a worthy sacrifice for the sin of the world. And so on that cross, Jesus becomes a substitute. He takes the punishment that we deserve. And so for any one of us, any of us today who trust that Jesus has dealt with our sin. We recognize that, that there is sin in our lives. And we believe that Jesus is the only one who can deal with it. Well, there is forgiveness. The Bible speaks with one voice on this. Brit read from the Old Testament, prophet Isaiah. It's the same song that lent lyrics to the song that Dave and the band have just sung for us. It's the, the suffering servant in Isaiah pointing us to Jesus. He's the one who's pierced for our sin. By his wounds, we are healed. In the New Testament, the authors underline the same meaning of Jesus' death over and over. Romans 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Hebrews 9.26, but as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the apostle Peter, he wrote, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. You see the unity? through the Bible of what the the death of Jesus means. It it means our forgiveness. And so listen, if you're here with us today and you're feeling your conscience weighed down by guilt because of something you've done or or something you haven't done at some stage in your life, kind of walking through life crushed by this weight of guilt, friend, Jesus can deal with that. He wants to lift that burden from you. He can take that weight of guilt and forgive it. He's not an angry God, is he? He, He's not there ready with a big stick to kind of beat us when we fail him again. No, here he is on the brink of death, but focused on other people, proclaiming forgiveness for these horrible things we've done. His death means we are cleared before God. Our guilt is dealt with. Now, maybe there are human relationships that we have to go and and sort out as well, but we start with God. We can experience that freedom of forgiveness that only He can give us. But look, I suspect there'll be some of us who, who don't think We need forgiveness. Uh, We haven't done anything wrong, nothing major at least, nothing deserving any death. And I get why we would think that, right? We, in Melbourne, we have a strong sense that it's goodness that flows from us, right? We just got to turn the tap on a little bit harder to let that goodness flow. There's no sin or, or evil that comes from within us. No, that's out there. That's other people. But I wonder how often we've been brutally honest with ourselves. Come with me for a moment. Just think about this, right? What are your good and lovable attributes? I'm guessing they they come to mind for most of us pretty quickly because those are the parts of ourselves that we tend to share with others. We're proud to put them on display, but what are the parts that you hide from most people? There are parts of our personality where Bad tempers and nasty thoughts and ugly temptations and harmful attitudes lurk. Most people would never know it about us. But we know it. We manage what we disclose, right? We, we kind of control what we show the world. But as hard as we try, those negative parts of our personality, they always bubble up. They always show up somewhere in speech and action, brings to mind a, a quote from the writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, himself a victim of injustice in Soviet Russia. He said this, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor through human classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Oh. Evil isn't just out there. It lurks in here. 
And if we're honest, we've seen it in our lives and we desperately need it to be dealt with before it drags us to hell and separates us from everything that is good and pure with God. Jesus promises to do that. And look, when we think of sin, I'm talking to all of us, Christians, as well as people who are not Christians here, because there can be no room for hypocrisy in the church. We know as Christians that we are forgiven of our sin, but not just once. We need to weave this pattern into our lives of pausing to look back and see the difference Jesus is making in our lives and experience his forgiveness that he has won for us on the cross. But we can always be sure of this. Jesus' death means our forgiveness. That is good news on this Good Friday, isn't it? Second angle we see of the cross. His death means our reconciliation. Back in Luke's story, after Jesus has prayed for forgiveness of his enemies, they continue to mock him. They, they laugh at him. He's no chosen one, they say. He's no Christ. He's no king. He can't be. Crucifixion is, is for rejects, not for royalty. It's ridiculous that he's made these claims. Look at him. Either side of Jesus are these two criminals, and one joins in with the mockers. He's spitting bile at Jesus. This is ridiculous. You say you could save yourself. No, save us as well. But the other one is different. No, the other rebukes him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He can see that Jesus is innocent. And not just that, he can see that Jesus has power, that he has the keys to his kingdom because he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's just a little grain of faith that he shows, but Jesus honors that confidence. Here's the second thing he says as he dies on the cross. To this criminal, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, with me in paradise. Not separated in death, but together in life. Jesus' death means our reconciliation. Just a a little while later in another part of the city, Luke tells us there's a scene that magnifies the meaning of Jesus' words. Uh, In the temple, there's been this thick curtain that separates uh, God from from humanity. It's in the the Holy of Holies, the kind of inner sanctum of the temple. And it is a place where once a year, one priest, the high priest, can go in and, and make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of all the people, kind of like an annual subscription that they had to keep renewing. And atonement is to make at one with God. It's reconciliation. But here now the temple curtain is torn. It's symbolic that the, the way to a relationship with a holy God is made clear. It's possible now to enter in and have that relationship. We're no longer separated by sin from God. It's, it's the first flow of our sin being forgiven that we can have this relationship. And again, the Bible speaks with one voice 
on this impact of the death of Jesus. At 1 Peter 3, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And this from 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus can promise that criminal that he will be with him in paradise because he is the means by which we are reconciled with God. And we know how powerful reconciliation is in our own lives, don't we? If you've experienced a a friendship renewed or a relationship restored, it is sweet. A few years ago, I had a, a terrible falling out with a close friend. I'd gone home to Ireland and he was on the brink of leaving his marriage. I'd been his best man. We'd grown up together. I knew his wife. I was devastated for them. And we talked and talked and talked. And as we talked, it just didn't make sense unless there was another woman involved. I was convinced there was. Well, he denied it and he denied it. And then I came back to Australia and found out a couple of months later, he then did leave his wife. And then just a short while after that, he was living with another woman. I was upset. I felt like he'd lied to me. And so I wrote this angry email, this accusatory email, and Sergio, my wife, said, don't send it, don't send it. But I left the room and I sent the email, and he was furious. I was a a judgy Christian. How dare I get on my high horse and judge? He was not in that relationship while he was still married. Our relationship was a mess. So time passed, and as it did, it, it just didn't sit right with me. Because really, I was the one that had caused this rift. I knew I had been quick to judge. And so I had to apologize for jumping to that conclusion. And, and so I did, and I asked for his forgiveness, and he gave it to me. And then when I returned to Ireland the next time, it was awkward when we saw one another, but that first hug to kind of mark the reconciliation of that relationship, gosh, that was sweet relief. Now, how much more with the God who who made us, the God who was our creator, the God who cares for us, who was our father, how much sweeter is reconciliation with him, embracing him for a restored relationship that will last forever. To be reconciled is to be spiritually alive. It's to be like Jesus. It's to live with Jesus. It's to always know his presence in our lives. And it is the fullest and and most fulfilling experience of being human. And that is a big claim, isn't it? But if you're not sure about that, you haven't experienced that yourself, well, then stay with us. Come and do the Follow Jesus course after Easter with us. Plug in to Alpha. Come and hear stories like Ravina's, stories of lives changed by Jesus. Come and read of the difference he made in this world. And he's still making. He's so completely unique. We won't meet anyone else like Jesus. There's no one whose death means more for you and I. His death means our reconciliation. 
There's one last angle on the cross that we're going to look at together this morning. His death means our life. Come with me to verse 46. They'll be on the screen as well. These are the very last words Jesus says before he died. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is no sigh of failure. It is a triumphant shout of victory. Because he knows the work is done. His sacrifice has atoned for our sin. We are forgiven of our sin. We can be reconciled with him in light of that atonement and forgiveness. The work is done. And once Jesus knows his purpose on the cross is achieved, he can release his spirit into his Father's hands. The plan is finished. Some people argue that Jesus is the innocent victim here of an angry Old Testament God. But no, he and God are one in this. It's not that he is the the surprise victim at the hands of heavy-handed Roman authorities. He's not the victim of jealous and injustice at the Jewish ruling authorities. No, this is a sacrifice planned by Father and Son, and here it's finished. We're going to lead into the promises of life in a big way on Sunday. We're going to celebrate the life we can have now because of Jesus. But we can't miss this today. The meaning of Jesus' death is our life. You see, forgiveness leads to reconciliation, and, and reconciliation leads to relationship, and relationship with God lasts forever from now into eternity. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 5, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The guarantee of our our forgiveness and our reconciliation is that Jesus rose from the dead. And that is the promise for every one of us. He holds it out to all of us that we can enjoy life forever with him if we believe that he is this same son of God, that he has this capacity to give us life. Friends, death will always be hard. It will always sting. None of us are exempt from that. I will go to funerals and I will wonder about what my death will mean and what impact or legacy it might have. I still wonder and will till I die about why my mom died when we were so young and she's so young. There is pain in the randomness and meaninglessness of death. But about this, I've got no doubt. There's never been a death more meaningful than the death of Jesus. That's where hope burns bright. Hope that I will be reconciled with my mom again and all of us to those we've lost after we've loved. If they and we are followers of Jesus, imagine how sweet that hug will be when we're reunited. Death doesn't need to be the dying of the light. It doesn't need to be the end of meaning and significance. No, Jesus promises us new life with him in paradise. And there's no one else 
that offers hope like that. It's the the paradox at the heart of Christianity that's never clearer than on Good Friday, that defeat, or so it seems, brings victory. That death of this one man can bring life for all of us. So what meaning do you make of the death of Jesus? Ask yourself this, if you died today, where would you go? Where would you be? Maybe you're not sure and you're still wondering and being here today is part of that journey of discovery. And and friend, that is wonderful. Continue on that journey of discovery. Don't let today just pass you by. Come back and be with us on Sunday and hear more stories of the difference Jesus makes. And let's explore the life that is available to us now because of his resurrection. Keep exploring what it means. Maybe you're a Christian, and this can seem like old news. We kind of heard this last Easter, and we hear it every Easter. But friend, God's mercy is new to us every day. My hope, my prayer is that as we see the significance of his death afresh, that we will turn to him with our lives as a sacrifice of worship in light of what he has done for us. And perhaps today... The penny has dropped, and and today is the day you want to start this new life with Jesus, friend. We're so glad that you're here, and we want to celebrate the start of that new life with you. The band is going to come up, and as they do, I'm going to leave a a few moments for us to gather our thoughts, consider the the weight of Jesus' death for us. And then we'll pray, I'll I'll lead us in a prayer. And if you're ready to put your trust in Jesus and accept him into your life, accept this offer of life that he gives us, then pray that prayer with me. And we'll talk in a little while about what next steps would be for your new life with Jesus. Let's take a moment and weigh up the meaning of this death. Friends, I'll ask all of us to bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. But if you're ready to embrace this new life with Jesus, then put your hand up. Step boldly into this new life as we pray. Pray these words with me quietly in your heart. Your hands up so our team can see who you are and celebrate and support you in this new life with Jesus. Let's pray together. King Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the significance of your death. I'm sorry, Jesus, for the way I've ignored and rejected you my whole life. Thank you that you forgive my sin. Thank you that you reconcile me to our heavenly Father. Thank you that you give new life. I believe your words are true. Come into my life, King Jesus. And help me live for you. 
Amen. And if you pray that prayer with us, we want to celebrate that with you. Uh, there'll be an explanation at the end of the service of how we can walk with you in that journey as you embrace this new life with Jesus. We are so grateful that he's still at work, still changing lives in this church. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.